favor. So, Abba Father, love you and thank you so much. And God, ask you to get our hearts ready to receive the truth of Psalm 51. And, and no healing in what it means to have a clean heart. Uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are not ashamed of your people in your story. Would you please bless right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Hey, there's Lisa and Janice. Okay, so. All right. Um, so Psalm 51. Now, um, historians argue that Psalm 51 was written about 104 B.C., but the events that formed the backstory to the psalm happened in about 106 B.C., okay? So what we're going to stitch together by that information is that there are, you know, a year, year and a half, two years, painful years after David's uh, sin, the, the radical sin with Bathsheba, the radical sin with Uriah, and the sin really with the nation. And uh, we'll, we'll comment about that toward the end. So, all right, what I want to do is I want to read the whole psalm and uh, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Translation. It'll be the 1995 edition. And um, I want you to open your heart and just listen and, and try to get the sense of what is going on in David's heart and how the Holy Spirit can use this in our lives. So David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips so that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, in a whole burnt offering. The young bulls will be offered on your altar. Okay, let's walk through this. It's really, really interesting. So uh, we're going to cover quite a bit of Hebrew vocab just to get, get an idea of the depth of what David is saying. Um, you're going to notice that David's, the language that he uses is not uh, cheap, shallow, um, almost almost a skimming of the issues like, um, hey, God, okay, uh, so like I messed up. Okay, sorry. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, that that is the opposite of what happens. So be gracious to me, Hanan. Um, have pity. Have mercy on me. Have pity on me, Elohim. And that's important that he doesn't say Jehovah. He's saying Elohim. And the idea, and that is plural in Hebrew. So he's saying, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm talking to all y'all up there. Okay. And I know that sounds maybe, maybe a, uh, uh, you know, a belittling of the language, but it's absolutely the opposite. It's just that. I am praying to all of you. Elohim is plural. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What is significant about that is that this is a comprehensive kind of cry uh, addressing the fullness of who God is. Have mercy, have pity on me, O God, according to your chesed. There's that word. Uh, It's translated loving kindness, translated faithfulness, unfailing love. It it is is like the, the Greek equivalent to grace. So according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness, uh, ruled in Hebrew, according to the greatness of your compassion and raham, mercy, wipe out maha. It literally wipe out maha means, it means to erase, just like you delete an email and you erase it, or you get your eraser board and you, 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 know, you literally erase something. It once was there, now it's gone. This is the idea of maha. Uh, your compassion, mercy, wiping it, it's gone. My wrongdoings, pesha, very important word, wrongdoings. Um, wash, kavaz, wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me, tahar, from my sin, from my sin. The language of cleanse, tahar, can refer to uh, certainly, certainly cleaning it up in the sense of getting that which is dirty off of it, dirt and things like that. But this language takes a, a tone of uh, the removal of sin, the removal of guilt. Look at verse 3. For I know, yada, and there's a little play on words there because in English we say yada, yada, yada. Well, now we know where the, the Hebrew base for that, yada. I know, I know, I know. Uh, David is, and, it, the, and the word Yada, it, it's very serious. David, in other words, David's not doing this. Well, I don't know what I, why you're so mad at me. I don't know what the big deal is, you know. 
No, he knows exactly what the big deal is. Yada means, David says, I own everything. I own it all. I'm not skimming over it. I'm not minimizing it. Uh, he, he's, it's really a significant word. I know my wrongdoings, there's Pesha again, and my sin is consistently before me, Tamid, um, constantly. It's like day and night. David's conscience is so damaged that it's, it's a constant thing. It's on his mind constantly. ESV reads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That is really, really significant. Um, just a couple comments before we move on. Um, I want you to appreciate the depth of language that he is not passing over or minimizing the situation, uh, nor is he catastrophizing either. He's not doing that. David is owning this thing. He's getting at it. And he's not running from God. You know. By the way, does Satan want us to do this? Is this the conversation Satan wants us to have with God? No. <laughs> not at all. In not fact, at all. In fact, Adam and Eve revealed what Satan really wants. Create shame and out of shame, isolate. That's what he wants. Shame leads to isolation. Isolation separates you from God. That's what he wants. He wants to create shame. And, and that is why 1 John 4 is so significant that perfect love can't set free. Okay, let's, let's keep digging here. So, um, verse 4, and by the way, when I first read verse 4 years ago, 40 years ago, I thought, no, that is not right. David can't mean that. And I really struggled with it uh, because, I, first of all, I, I didn't dig deep enough into the text. Against you, kata, against you and you only. It's, it's, it's in the emphatic. Against you, it repeats it, you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And I thought, no, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Uriah's family. There's a whole lot of sinning going on. How can you say that you sinned against God and God alone. And I thought, that makes no sense, you know. And so I, I struggled to get that. What is happening here? And you, you, I'll guide you through the text. David is just beginning the process of repentance. And he's really specifically dealing. The first three verses are general concepts of repentance, very deep, but general. Here he's getting specific, God against you. And it's, it's emphasized again. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified in the judgments that, that you have given to me. That is very much an idea that you see in the prophets. That when God, when God makes a judgment to the left, it is righteous. When he makes a judgment to the right, it is righteous. And that we are not in a position to criticize the judgment of God. We're not. All right, now watch this. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in guilt, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's a challenge. What does that mean? 
Possible interpretations are uh, this is a generalized concept that all of us are born into the sin line of Adam, Adamic sin, right? All of sin and come short of the glory of God. It all, all men fell with the first Adam. All men have the potential to rise and live through the second Adam. Or it's a reference that David's mother may have been involved in adultery or David's father. We don't know. We don't know. Psalm 27.10, David says, My mother and my father have forsaken me. And we don't know what the backstory is there. Whatever it is, it's not good. Because if they had just aged and died, David wouldn't have said that. So it's a curious thing that David says against you and you only have a sin. And then he says, and in sin, my mother conceived me. That's really interesting. Why did he say that? Possibly uh, David's mother uh, transgressed as they do the Bathsheba. Um, or this is a general reference to all who are born after Adam are born into sin. And then he says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in secret you will make wisdom known to me. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Cleanse me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones you have broken rejoice. Verse 8. Sometimes we can appreciate the meaning of a text if we kind of flip it to the opposite and say something like, uh, Lord, since since all that happened with Bathsheba and with Uriah and the whole mess, I've had no joy and I have no gladness in my life. I've been miserable for a long time. It's as though you've broken my bones. Does that make sense? And then he says, hide your face from my sins and wipe out all of my guilty deeds. Okay. It's interesting that David wants Elohim God the Father, Son, Spirit, to turn his face, their face, not from him, but turn from that sin. God's saying, would you please see me for who I am and don't just see me in my sins. And then look at this. Now, this is, this is my interpretation. I believe this next block, he is asking forgiveness for his sin with Bathsheba. Now, it doesn't say that. I think it is implied, all right? Created me a clean heart, O God, to whore, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is language, the language of to whore, um, it's, it's oftentimes used of that which is clean and pure ceremonially. And when you look at the language of Second Samuel, that Bathsheba was in a cleansing process when she was bathing. And the idea of cleansing and purification is a part of the initial backstory. And, and that's when David saw her in a ceremonial bath. And I think this hints at that language. Created me a clean heart, O oh God, and your steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me away from your presence. Cast my sin away from your presence, but not me. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It's interesting that, that I'd mentioned earlier, just the verse earlier, he lost joy, he lost, glad, he lost gladness. Shuv in Hebrew, shuv, restore, shuv, to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will be converted to you. It's interesting that already as David is repenting, he has a greater view for how sin uh, damages an entire nation. Very powerful. So as I read the Hebrew text, David is specifically repenting for what is a direct sin against God, but he's also repenting for his sin against Bathsheba. And then I think this is a part of his confession of sin against Uriah. Save me, Natsal. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. Hebrew is dam. And dam literally means blood, is what it means. In fact, it even means uh, the juice from a crushed grape, which is red and kind of looks like blood. And that's why we have the concept of the, the blood of grapes, the grapes that are crushed that would make wine. Same word. This is the language of bloodshed. I think this is a direct reference to Uriah. That David is responsible for the death of Uriah. Save me from the blood guiltiness or the guilt of bloodshed. God, again, and it's Elohim, and it's repeated. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. Elohim, the Elohim of my salvation. And then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. I think David is in fact addressing all the sin issues that are clustered together in this event recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Um, And then David, I believe, acknowledges that guilt blocks worship. Lord, open my lips so that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, God. You will not despise. Elohim, you will not despise. Historians and scholars suggest that David stopped writing worship songs for possibly close to two years. No more songs. The great worship leader of Israel could not worship anymore. And upon repentance and owning fully the sin that he sinned against God, Bathsheba in Hebrew, Bathsheba, and then, uh, and then with Uriah, David says, open up my lips. I want to sing again. I want to write songs again. I want to lead the choir. Uh, David is repenting in this, in this full and comprehensive way. And then as the, the, the psalm ends, by your favor, do good design, build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering, whole burnt offering, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David prays for national revival.
All right. So here are some some things that I have concluded about this. Uh, um, but first, there it is, a big scan for you. That's an American standard. Let me turn it over to you. Um, what is significant about the psalm and how we live today, how we deal with our sin issues? Um, what are your thoughts? If I may, I, I got questions. <clears throat> okay. In this time frame, kings were almost required to lead from the front when going into battle. Yes. Yes. So David is so overcome with lust for Bathsheba mm -hmm. that he says to Uriah, take my place. Which is almost shaming himself in doing that in front of his nation. The yeah. nation expects yeah. him to have shield and sword uh, on the battlefield. Yeah. Yeah. So the, his, he had to know that he was not only willingly sacrificing uh, Uriah, but what he was doing with Bathsheba was also a great sin. Yes. When this yeah. was happening. Yes. 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 And he knew that he was sinning big time when he was doing this. This wasn't like after the fact somebody came up and said, oh, you know, David, that wasn't a good thing he did. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's all very intentional when you read the text. Yeah. Very intentional. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So now he is basically a broken man. Yes. And he is praying this beautiful psalm yes. to get back. Is the lesson that no matter what sin we have committed, yeah. We can run to the Father. Yeah, and, and that's so good, Terry. And by the way, um, when he says restore, shuv, restore, it literally means to walk backwards. It means to walk back in Hebrew, shuv. Yeah, it, it's as though God, it's like God left him. God was walking away. And he says, God, restore me, come back to me. It's very, very, very significant. Terry, I would word things a little differently as you reported it, but I think you're really getting at it, okay, in so many ways. Uh, I want to read, in view of what Terry just said, this is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Now, you're military, so you're going you're gonna to pick up on those concepts, right? Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, okay, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they went and destroyed or fought the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Okay, so there's really where it begins. This is the root of the problem. Um, in ancient Mediterranean culture, they 
they all face the burden to fight border wars. It's all about borders. Just like the U.S. is about a southern border right now, right? Um, and I heard in the news that someone is saying that, that it's possible that Joe Biden's policies are unconstitutional to stop the wall and that that project has got to be finished. Yeah. So think about borders. And if our border is porous, you know it's going to have an impact on our, on our nation. They're estimating 9 to 12 million illegals have entered our country. Okay, that's like a small nation has crossed our border. All right. You get the idea of borders. All right. In Israel, is this a big, is this big real estate over here? Are we talking about millions of square miles? No, we're talking about a little tiny slice of land called Israel, right? And all these other small, ancient Mediterranean uh, nations. They all had border wars. And a nation that was thriving would always engage in defending those borders. And it is the job of a king warrior to protect the borders. These are border wars. This isn't World War II and Axis powers. That's not what this is about. This is, it's springtime. Let's protect our borders. That's what this is about. It's about real estate, square footage, and David doesn't want to do that. He lost his vision. He lost his heart to be a king warrior. And that's where it started. That's where it started. So, someone else, what do you see here, and how does it pull into our world today? I do want to talk about Ravi Zacharias in view of this, and we'll get to that. So. Chris? Yes, sir. For me, I see something that's quite uh, telling of the difference between a worldly person and a person that got to taste the living waters of what, what God does. Once, you, once you've accepted God into your life and you've, you have him as your, as your leader, I would say, of your life, as your father, you, you, then you turn away and you try to do something different. The difference between a worldly person and a Christian person, a worldly person wouldn't care. They would just keep going about their life. Uh, stresses that happen, they'll blame whatever else. That never, never even think about anything that they had before that was wonderful, that was joyful, that was that was gracious and loving. Whereas a Christian person, after they've sinned like that, even if it took years, it's still it's still on them. They're they're longing to return back to the the amazing love that God has. And to me that's what you see David, you know, he for for a long time he he hid it. He tucked it away and it was eaten at him. It, I mean it was visibly seen by others. And finally it, it got to him. You know, it finally got to him. His his he, his mind finally was saying, "Okay, that's enough. I I've, I've been away from God too long." And, and to and to return back to that joy and and love and kindness that God had provided. Okay, very good, very good. Okay, someone else.
experience to know Christ for the first time. Mm -hmm. They experience revival. They experience a new spirit, a new life. They get salvation. And I think everyone who professes that they follow Christ remembers the moments mm -hmm. where they felt their life change. And I think to me that's also evidence of the fact that you're able to break the cycle of sin when you first get saved. And honestly, I think a lot of repentance is just remembering that God's already saved you from. Romans 6. Mm -hmm. And so to remember how broken we are and to remember how good and great God is. And I think it's interesting, too, that David mentions the Holy Spirit. It's, this is before the transfiguration. You know, he already knows there's a third part of God. Yeah, Elohim. Um, but um, I just think it's important when you have a sin that it's just you're having a hard time overcoming or it's great and you feel guilt over it. Like you said, you have to run to the Father. You have to remember how Jesus has done so much for you. And you have to be willing to accept that mm. and to be willing to allow God to clean your heart. Mm. And um, there's no substance. Yeah. Even though God demanded sacrifice, he, he desires your heart. That is so good, Philip. So good. He said it better than I did. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. You did well, David, sir. <laughs> I, I do want to make a couple comments about Ravi Zacharias. Uh, I'm assuming everyone is aware of the investigation report on that. Okay. Um, here's my assessment of the situation and you know, process as you, as you see appropriate. Uh, comment number one. I do not believe Ravi Zacharias was a Christian. I don't. That may sound extremely harsh, but in my statement, I'm honoring First John, the, the epistle of First John. Uh, it's interesting that in First John chapter two, verse one, it says, "My little children, I am writing these things to you that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father." So, Philip, there are Christians who have what are sometimes called besetting sins or sins we stumble in, right? And yet, when you look at 1 Peter, or, or 1 John 3, there is explicit language. It's, it's clear. It's not a gray area kind of hinted at that no one can sin habitually and be born of God. I don't believe Ravi Zacharias was saved. I don't. Comment number two about Ravi Zacharias. And this may, this may be a, a bit of a surprise to you. I believe that the anointing of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of Jesus, rests on two things. It rests on the word of God in total. And it rests on the gospel. And that's it. I do not believe in churches that are anointed. I do not believe in church staff that are, that are anointed. I do not believe in individuals who are anointed. I think we get in huge trouble 
when we think there's a person that is in and of their own selves anointed. I don't think that's true. I think when it says all of sin and come short of the glory of God, I think that's exactly what it means. And I think there's none righteous, no, not one. I do not believe in an anointed individual that when they walk in the room, oh, get ready for the double whammy of the spirit that's coming. I don't believe in that. I think it's man-made religion. I believe that a lost man can give the gospel and it is so powerful, people will be saved. I believe a lost man can argue sound principles of philosophy and actually help people turn to God. Absolutely. Absolutely. The anointing is on the gospel. The anointing is on Jesus, his story. It's on the word of God. I don't believe in this, I think, very unhealthy idea, oftentimes associated in the charismatic traditions and oftentimes associated with Old Testament tradition uh, about an anointing being on an individual. I think that's dangerous stuff. Really dangerous. Comment number three. Uh, you need to appreciate that at Grace Counseling Clinic, I deal with perversion in all its forms. And people who have engaged in the perverted behaviors and dangerous behaviors, and they have been the receivers of that kind of corrupt, perverted, and horrific sin against them. When they're children and when they're adults. Okay. So this isn't new to me at all. And this is an ongoing regular task and responsibility to restore someone who's experienced this kind of abuse, the kind of abuse that, that Ravi dished out. Okay. You need to understand something about Ravi. He was a predator. Do you understand what I mean by that? That isn't that boy, we don't want to hear that, do we? We want to hear that he was a wonderful man of God that got off the path, you know. No, no. If you under if you understand the criteria. And I'm talking about not just the diagnostic statistical manual of psychiatry and the criteria of what a sexual predator or a, a sociopath, how they meet the criteria of being a predator to take physical, uh, to, to, to kill, to maim, kill, destroy, or to sexually prey upon someone. He meets that criteria. He met that criteria. And furthermore, it's also in Scripture. Okay. What happened with Ravi Zacharias is reprehensible, it is horrible, and it is inexcusable in every single sense. I do not believe he was a Christian. And I believe he is being righteously judged by God. Now, in my heart of hearts, what I love to say in the 11th hour, <laughs> the wicked, wicked man turned and, and went to the gates of glory, a broken and devastated and crushed man saved by the great. Yes, yes. I don't want anybody to suffer for eternity in hell. I don't want that. I don't delight in that. I hope that happens. 
But if it wasn't an 11th hour deathbed conversion, I do not believe Ravi Zacharias is in heaven. Ouch. Yes, sir. You and I have had conversations, and you know that I, you know, like I said at your funeral, and I said at his funeral. Yeah. And went, yeah. yeah. And Hundreds of thousands do. I, I really did, just like I did James Thompson and, and other folks. Sure. And so, sure. Uh, but, you know, looking back, I can I could hear a pride and almost a corruption. So it was there, and I thought, you know, after I found out about all, all this, I followed him to the bitter end. And I, he, you know, as far as I know, he had he had a chance to come clean. Yep. And as you, he didn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I want to say with as much encryption as possible. Someone was in my office recently who is experienced horrific treatment by a predator as a little girl for so years. And they were at a particular church. And guess what the pastor said about Ravi Zacharias? You know, man, sometimes we stumble. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, that could be me. Now, what do you think that person heard? It's perfectly okay. It happens sometimes. Not a big deal. Yeah. Not a big deal. If he stumbled, he got on a different set of trains. We're not talking about, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. We're not talking about First John 2, 2, 1. A little children, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. No, no, no. We're talking about habitual sin. Oh, but it's worse. We're talking about being a predator. And what is, yeah. So what I'm trying to say is I think a horrific sin can be committed by the church. And you know what that is? To make light of what happened with Robbie Zacharias. Like, I ain't nothing new, you know. Another preacher falls, another day, another preacher gets caught or something, you know. Like we're, we're, like we're ain't no big deal, you know. Don't put your faith in men. No, 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 no. This isn't that. No, this is a predator engaging in criminal, illegal, criminal activity. If you haven't read the impact statement in the FBI report, people, it is bad. It is real bad. And, and Christ Church will not endorse that and turn a blind eye to it. Just like, hey, you know, we all stumble. Don't raise your hand against God's anointed. Grab at a couple of passages like that in the Old Testament. No, no. Our churches are full of people that have been radically abused, and yet the, the very church can be the place that is unsafe. Okay. I know that wasn't pleasant, huh? Andrew? Well, Psalm 51 is David's repentance, but Psalm 51 is not the repentance of all the people that helped him. Because what he did, he did not do alone. alone. And he had a lot of help. A lot. From 
servants and his top military leaders. Top military leaders who were invested in him doing this. So these kinds of sins that happen at the top are not usually just one person. No. There has to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we we just are social creatures, and we like to go along and. We really hesitate to be ugly and to make a scene. Yeah, yeah. You're wise, Andrea. Yeah. I read, earlier this week I had read again the story of of Cain slaying his brother and God saying, where's your brother? Uh, And then God pronouncing his judgment on Cain that he was going to be cast out. But he didn't kill him. He didn't put him in prison. And as you were reading the Psalm 51, I was just struck again how David has done this terrible thing. But he's not executed. He's not put in he's not put in prison for life. And I I'm I'm not advocating that people should be punished. I'm just saying I just find it really interesting that Cain and David experienced consequences of their sin, but both of them cried out to God. And here's this amazing thing that you can do the worst thing. And if you cry out to God, like it's possible to get his ear. Grace. Like can you imagine? Yes. Like there's not that many people on earth and Cain killed one of them. And, and, and the, like, your punishment is too much for me. And God says, okay, I'll make sure that no one executes you. Yeah. And David does this whole thing, which is horrible, not just for him, but for his whole nation. They are all This is a national problem. They are going to pay all of them so much for this. And God responds to him. Yes, yes. So can I quote the Apostle Paul, Andrea, in view of all that you've said with great wisdom and insight? How much more will the Lord hear our cry when we are in Jesus? If any man is in Christ, any woman is in Christ. Wow. Here are some things I've noticed, and it's a limited list. Prior to his sins, David lost his sense of purpose as a warrior king. Prior to repentance, David's attitude was indicative of anger and rashness. You may remember David says, hey, uh, or, or the prophet Nathan, hey, you know, there's this old guy with a, with a lamb that's just like a pet, and he doesn't have any kids, and this lamb is like his, his pet, and he sleeps with the lamb, and this other guy who's got thousands of sheep uh, is going to throw a party, and they need to kill a lamb. They go, and they steal the old man's little lamb, even though he had thousands of sheep. What should be done with this guy? Nathan is setting David up. And Nathan rages <gasps> off with his head. He should be killed for what he did. And then, da- and what does Nathan say? You are that man, or the old King James, thou art the man. So prior to repentance, sometimes a man of pride becomes very angry, about, or a woman of pride becomes very angry about things, about moral things about ethical things, anger and rashness. Prior to repentance, David stopped writing worship songs, possibly two years. David uses the language of deep and comprehensive repentance. It's not cheap and sallow. 
uh, okay, God, sorry, I apologize. No, that's not repentance. There may be allusions to generational sin in Psalm 51. In sin, my mother conceived me. David, I love this. David didn't blame anyone for his actions. Okay, all right, God, I really messed up here. But did you know what the general, the, the, I gave him orders and he should have known not to do that. You know, he doesn't pass the, any blame onto anyone. David, David acknowledges that sin negatively impacts all, all even a nation. He doesn't appear to repeat the process of repentance as referenced in 2 Samuel. How many times do you have to ask forgiveness? Exactly. Exactly, Jay. Yeah. Would it be healthy for, for David to drill himself down into this pit of shame and disgust and perversion so much so that when the next the light of the next day he's he's head down and, and he's God okay can can I can I ask you forgiveness one more time please and work through this whole thing again and and David stays in this self-generating self-loathing shame is that healthy why why is it not healthy Somebody else? Why is, why is it not healthy? Not a biblical attitude, right? Yeah. So there you go. It's against the truth. So done at that point. But there's, is there something else? Yes, yes. And even from a psychologist's point of view, Salome, it can mean someone's trying to be their own savior. Oh, is that called idolatry? There you go. Yeah, you're, you're trying to be a self-sacrificing savior. You're trying to be your own self-sacrificing God. You're trying to be your own God and morally fix your own problem by grieving yourself and shaming yourself. You know, I used to be a Catholic, and, you know, and if you, if you shame yourself enough, you, you, maybe you'll get, you get forgiven, you know. Uh, walk on your knees on gravel for 100 yards up to the cross, and that'll get God's attention, and he'll feel sorry and forgive you. When we have this secret desire, oh, is there an echo of, of Adam and Eve here? Psst, Satan, hey, eat this apple or pomegranate, whatever it was, and you'll be like God. And you'll know good and evil, and you'll be your own God. Hey, you'll be your own Savior. Go ahead, take a bite. It's great. It's right to the root of it. Being our own Savior, okay? There's something about needing Jesus. There's something about needing our Savior, yeah. Now, Andrea, you gave you, you spoke so wisely about hope, huh? Yeah. Which apparently we really need, because if you're David and you have done miracles, God has worked through you. Mm -hmm. You have been righteous when no one else could. You're, you're fighting. Almost your entire life, all you've been is fighting. In war. And you can get so tired of it that you're ready to stay home. And um, all of the 
good things that you did before that are just not enough to protect you. They're good memories. They're good memories. And it's and you can't even count on the people around you to go, no, you can't do that. You, do you know what I'm saying? Which should so, have happened. So yeah. the sin is just so tricky. It just comes after him. It's so, so tricky. And I think it would be so hopeless if the grace wasn't big enough. Because I'm not as good as David. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Nor I. Yeah. Yeah. And number nine, the wisest man who ever lived came from the union of David and Bathsheba. Sloan, you're nodded. Who is it? Solomon. It is Solomon. It is Solomon. Do you think that God can cause all things to work together for good? Absolutely. Isn't that beautiful? How's that for grace? And, and how about the beauty and the irony of out of the most foolish decision comes the wisest man? Yeah. There's hope. And then in, in David, as, as David ages, and, uh, and even, by the way, David doesn't finish entirely well, by the way. You may remember the story of Bruce when you look at how David handles his deathbed instructions. Quite fascinating. Um, he's called what? What's, what's his label, his title? David is known as? A man after God's own heart. And you're like, no, <laughs> no, you can't say that. Well, yes, you can when you're God. Acts chapter 10, verse 15. Uh, God is trying to get Peter ready to understand that the gospel is not going to be just a Jewish thing. It's going to go to the Gentiles. And there's an interesting exchange between he and God uh, about eating unclean food. And, and Peter says, Lord, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. And God says, what I say is clean, no one can say is unholy. If any man is in Christ, they're a new creation. All things have passed away. All things become new. When Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, you think that was a dysfunctional church? Was there political dysfunction? Yep, legal dysfunction, religious dysfunction, charismania going sideways, absolutely, sexual dysfunction, lawsuits in the church, drunkenness. Can you imagine coming early to the Lord's Supper, drinking most of the wine and getting drunk? Before the church service even started? <laughs> well, sometimes church is stressful. You know, sometimes, you know, it might be nice. If, if it could, if, did anybody bring the, bring the box wine? We want the big, the big box wine thing, the two-gallon deal. And how does Paul call that? How does he address the Corinthians? He does it in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians. How does he? Now, this is the church, this dysfunctional, messed-up church. He calls them what, Tammy? Somebody? Saints. Saints. To the saints who are in Corinth. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very much so. Okay, Bruce, let's park there for just a little bit. I'm not going to comment. Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Uh, 
Is Paul not a wicked, wicked, evil man? You bet he was. He was a murderer. In fact, he said, I'm the chief sinners. Yeah, I'm, I'm of all the people, I wasn't qualified. But he said, God in his mercy chose me to show the world the patience of Jesus through me. He counted me trustworthy. Yeah. God can change wicked, wicked people. At the 11th hour. At the first hour, at the 11th hour, at any time. I pray that Ravi's in heaven. And when I meet him, wow, what a, a story I'm going to hear. I, I would love that. But had he not repented and, and truly been born again, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. So... Now, where are you on the spectrum of way over here where, well, I, okay, I, I do a little white line now and again. And I may have some pride issues, and uh, I'm so righteous I don't see our movies. In fact, I don't see PG-13 movies. In fact, I don't even see G. I see no movies at all, so I'm right over here, and I will never compromise by watching the Gilmore Girls or Friends. I'm right over here. Okay. <laughs> oh, or over here where we're talking the most extreme forms of wickedness and rebellion. I don't know where you are in the spectrum, uh, and I'm doing this to, to intentionally provoke you that pride is one of the most blinding and damaging things that can happen to us. And if the pride is deep enough and takes root inside of us, you ready? We can justify a whole lot of stuff. Pride and greed are brother and sister. Pride says, I deserve. Greed says, get it. You can justify a whole lot with pride. You sure can. Okay. If there's ever a moment when this is going to come to life, it's right now. <laughs> For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, David. This is my body, which is for you, Saul, this is my body, which is for you, Ravi. This is my body, which is for you, Chris Perry. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, David, as often as you, Ravi, Saul, Andrea, Terry, all of you, as long as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you are proclaiming 
the Lord's death until he comes. You are literally telling the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. First John 1 John 1.8, if we say that we do not have sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 9, if we say we have no sin, we make him out to be a liar. And right in the middle of those two ideas, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What I want you to do is take a minute, and maybe the best thing for you to do right now is to say, Abba, Father, Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit in me. And then when you're ready, take the Lord's hand. Only when you're ready.